Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show, Seth David Radwell. Uh, he is the author of the recently released American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing the Nation. Uh, well, I think that's a secret that everybody wants to know right now. Welcome to the show, Seth. Tanya, thanks so much. I'm really pleased to be here. So I found, um, let me see if I'm sort of describing the gist of the book. Essentially, your thesis is that this is not the most divided we've ever been. We are not in an unprecedented uh, levels of, uh, you know, we're not experiencing unprecedented levels of hatred for one another. We've always been these bitterly divided, uh, angry folks, at least angry with one another. Is that basically the gist? You've got some optimism uh, laid in there, but is that essentially, the, uh, is that essentially your, your thesis? Yes, I mean, yes, completely in the sense that this is not unprecedented, the nature of what our political discourse has come to, to be and how devolved it has become over the past couple of years. In fact, what the book does, Tanya, is it traces the, the, the history of our divergent, uh, divergence, of our differences, back to our roots, back to when the country was founded. And my, my feeling and the reason why I embarked on this like over two-year project is because I felt that the current political discourse in the U.S. had really collapsed, had been crowded out by unreason and acrimony and rancor. And my feeling was the only solution was to really understand in, in, in a historical perspective, to put some of today's political woes in context. And that required an investigative tracing backward of how we got to where we are. And what I'll, I'll just say in summary that I've read tons of materials for this book. And what I would say is that we are caught today, most Americans are caught in two bubbles. We hear about this all the time. We, we hear frequently about our partisan bubbles that we're each in our own world in terms of what news sources we use and how we interpret and think about facts that happen. But we're also in a time bubble. And we think we're so unique in our history, but in fact, we had a bitter divide at the founding of the nation between two competing camps. Uh, uh, and the book starts with what that division was back in the 18th century and then traces it through different episodes of our history until we get to today. And ultimately, actually, I'm glad you mentioned this, it is optimistic in that it lays out what I think is a new way of thinking about how to interact with each other. And that sounds, I know that sounds awfully bold, but the research that I've done shows that over 77% of Americans are part of what I call an exhausted majority meaning they're, they're extremely frustrated at the commentary on both the extreme left and right. And they believe fundamentally that Americans have more in common than not. So what's happening today is we're in this game, this, this kind of bitter discussion, which is really not based in reason, but is, is almost like a, a, sports, a, a sports arena. We're, we're mudslinging as opposed to solving problems. And that's no way to run a democracy. So what are the core issues that divide us? I mean, you talk about how we really started off as two Americas. How would you describe those two Americas? What are they and who's in them? So, so the original two Americas really are not like the red and blue America of today, but, but it is kind of an antecedent to that. So what were they? Well, it turns out the country was founded by um, 
a, a bunch of men who were enlightenment thinkers. And, you know, one of the theses and one of the premises of the book is how important the enlightenment is as our heritage. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. But these, these, in, these uh, thinkers had two very distinct views. There was kind of a split in enlightenment thought in the 18th century. So one group, and by the way, the way I characterize them in the book is very much a framework from one of the enlightenment's most interesting and well-researched scholars, a guy named Jonathan Israel, who's a professor at various universities. But he has this model of the Enlightenment not being characterized by geography, which it often had been, the German Enlightenment, the British Enlightenment, the American Enlightenment. But instead, he breaks the Enlightenment up into a moderate group and a radical group. And th this is where the initial divisions in America started right back then at that founding. So one group was very supportive of democracy and egalitarianism and, the other, and, and also a separation of church and state. Those were the radicals, and the moderates were much more comfortable with uh, the, the elite society that was structured at the time, and actually were not, not fans of democracy. They, they, thought, they thought democracy meant demagoguery because so many uh, uh, early colonists were not educated. So the, the, you know, the moderate group would be people like John Adams and Alexander Hamilton in the States, and the radicals were people like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine. And they, they had bitter opposition in what they envisioned the country to be. And that moderate radical split created incredible enmity at the founding, and it resulted in two very different distinctions of what America could be. Well, it's interesting that you talk about this notion of who the founders were and the differences between them. Because if you look at, you know, a body of work like the Federalist Papers, for instance, um, which were at the time a series, I mean, they were really like op-eds. They were pro-Constitution op-eds. Uh, a lot of the protections that they assumed democracy would have don't exist. They thought that our big, that they thought that the country's wide expanse would be, uh, would provide some protection from demagogues. Uh, cable news and the internet uh, threw that assumption uh, out the door. So there are a lot of baseline presumptions about how the country would evolve that uh, turned out not to be true. The big schism, uh, certainly, was the enslavement of African Americans. Now, how do you trace the divide over slavery? Like, if you were to kind of plot, because your book is all about plotting where we are now and how it's related to where we've come from. A lot of these debates are fights that we're still having. Uh, wh where does the debate over slavery and civil rights and, you know, the current, uh, I think, resurgence, that the divide we're seeing in the country racially, how does that figure in in terms of these core issues that divide us? Well, Tanya, it's at the very crux of it. And the way this is illustrated in the book is by comparing the Declaration of Independence of 76, which is a radical document, with the later Constitution of 1787, which is a much more moderate document. And what I mean by that is the Declaration as a credo states that all men are created equal. And unlike some people think today, that, that was meant by, by the writers to really mean all people. Even though we were we had uh, this horrible institution of slavery, the fundamental credo of the Declaration is that 
there are inalienable rights that the radical enlighteners had identified as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And every American was to enjoy those fruits. Now, what happened between 1776 and 1787 was an incredible turn towards the more moderate side, really because of the need to govern this new group of 13 colonies that was so wildly in debt with many, many different issues and problems and had a bunch of practical considerations that ended up forging what was in essence a compromise between the moderate and the radical side, which is what was the Constitution. But but here's the thing, Tanya, and you're right, the Constitution with the Bill of Rights was, was intended to protect some of those rights, but the Constitution was number one malleable. It was intended to change. And no one at the Constitutional Convention believed that slavery would be here forever. They thought somehow that it was going to go away. And they really punted on the issue, which is in retrospect to tragedy. But they they did so for the practical uh, realities of keeping the South part of the Union. And of course, that exploded in m- many decades later. So what the book does is, to your point, is go- it really goes into why slavery was the crux of this division between the radicals and the moderates and how it played out over many epics of our history. But of course, through, through, through in, in the, the early 18th century, um, 19th century with Jacksonian populism, and then through the Civil War, uh, and then again through the Civil Rights era. And the, the overall tra- uh, trajectory of, in a way, of Americans, his, American history has been to try to fulfill the creed in the Declaration, to enfranchise uh, groups of Americans. Originally in the Constitution, it was white men with property that were recognized as full Americans. The course of our history has been a battle about other groups getting a voice as part of who is us. And that's what the book traces and discusses. So is that still at the root of our divisions today? Because right now, uh, you know, just to put a bit of a political spin on things. We're seeing a real fight about access to the ballot box. We're seeing fights about uh, who should have access. We're seeing fights about voting restrictions and voting limitations. Uh, Does that somehow trace back to, you know, I don't know how you describe Uh, it because a lot of those, but you know, if the fight is between the sort of elites and the more populists, I don't know how to draw those lines. Well, let me let me let me see if I can help, because I I, this again is a a very big topic in the book. And the way that what I try to describe is that many of the debates that we're having today, including, you know, the recent assault on the Capitol and all the craziness that's gone on is derivative of some of these early issues, which I reframe in the third part of the book as three big issues. One of them is, do we really believe in a bottom-up form of government of the people? You've got to answer that question because there's definitely a move towards autocracy and towards demagogues or or leaders who can take powers into their own hands in ways that was certainly outside of what the founders intended. And that's true in America. It's true all over the world. If you look at what's happening in, in Turkey and Russia and China, this move towards autocracy. So the first question is, you know, what, what the Enlightenment thinkers gave us, both moderates and radicals, was a social contract or government of the people. Now, once you answer that question, that yes, we believe in a representative democracy, a government of the people, the second question that needs to be answered and is, 
completely behind what you see today with the voting rights issues, is who is us? We, we the people, who does that include? Because, because it included certain people at the founding. And as I mentioned, it's been extended. But to, even today, we don't have consensus on who is us, who is we the people. And we don't have consensus on how to expand the group, which is why we have such incredible bitterness over immigration as, an, as, as a, a concept. Now, we are, over the course of our history, we have defined we the people in different ways. And in fact, as a consequence, our immigration policy over many, over the centuries has changed. When we were really in need of workers, it was kind of more open. It was always, I would argue, discriminatory. Um, and then at other times it's become very closed. And, but, but fundamentally that second question of who counts as people is really what's driving all of this access to the ballot box issue because the right to vote is the most fundamental element of a representative democracy. Now, do you think that the inquiry really starts there or do we need to start with the more preliminary question uh, as to whether or not we all believe in government by the people from the ground up. I mean, I would uh, suggest to you that there are, I think I've taken for granted that people believe that, and I don't think that everybody who calls themselves a good American, uh, a fighter for democracy, actually believes that. I mean, so, I mean, do you not think that that's also part of what we're fighting right now is an issue over whether or not we actually believe that the people should have a say in the government or should it just be some of the people inside inside our bubble and you know if we want to i'll just use an example siege the uh, storm the capital because the election didn't go our way that and call it democracy we'll do that i mean are we not now seeing sort of uh, a pro authoritarianism bent that's sort of camouflaged in this populist rhetoric? Absolutely. I mean, that, that is why the, the, the form of government of we the people bottom up is the first core issue, what I call the core issue in the book. And there's a, there's a, a, a researcher named Danielle Allen at Harvard who's wonderful because her whole premise is that we, we have taken democracy for granted that we really have to understand what it takes to be in a democracy and what that means and what the benefits and challenges are. It's not the easiest form of government, but it's, the, it's a superior form of government because it allows people to engage and learn and increase their knowledge. In other words, the whole, her research is wonderful and it's quoted a lot in the book, but one example would be in an, in an authoritarian system, some rulers hand down policies which people have to abide by. In, demo in democracy, policy gets debated and discussed and compromises are made. And those compromises are with an open veil so that people can understand what's happening. Now, it's by far from perfect. We've had a lot of issues, but your point is exactly right. We have to decide whether we're going to embrace a democracy of the people or if certain people's rule or, uh, you know, perspective is going to count more. And one of the great things, one of the most important aspects of, of a democracy is about listening to other points of view. And what my research shows is that when Americans get together and actually spend time face to face and understand each other, there's an incredibly higher degree of understanding and, 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 and empathy with other points of view, as opposed to shouting at each other over Twitter. And in, in other words, our media models today are really not 
I mean, this show is to discuss issues is really important, but I'm talking about some of the social media and cable media that's very abridged and black and white. And that's not very conducive for really building understanding. And the research shows that. So if we are, if we've always been to Americas, uh, you know, different two factions of people with very dissimilar views about what democracy is and who gets to participate in it. And if we're also living in a moment, uh, as you properly describe, uh, where uh, it's our, our dominant models for communicating do not lend themselves to deeper engagements, you know, it's much easier to hate somebody when you're tweeting at them than when you're talking to them. Uh, so what's the answer? I mean, are we, are we doomed? No, the answer is a couple of things. And, and this is the third part of the book kind of lays this out. The answer is, first of all, we need to understand that our, our debate, um, America has always been about divergent points of view. They've always existed. And, um, discussing different points of view and, and, and debating them are part of what makes us a great democracy. But a lot of that is based on a, a mix of both passion and reason. And today, the debate is moving more towards the rejection of objective truth. So in other words, if you, if you reject objective truth in a democracy, you're doomed. Because it's based on, and this is, again, one of our inheritances from the Enlightenment, it's based on reason and rejective truth, objective truth. So while we thrive on different points of view on how to run the country, once we reject objective truth altogether, democracy is doomed and we allow tribalist beliefs and what we call today identity politics to, to crowd out any reason. So to answer your question, the answer is, is that I'm calling the book in some ways, besides being an investigative tracing and a history, is a call to action. We have to reject um, the knee-jerk uh, impulse that we have. The way I describe it, Tanya, in the book is this. You know, we, human beings, the species over millennia, have developed these primitive, primal emotions that relate to our survival. And we, we all know how great it feels to be part of an in-group and, and, and to attack an out-group. In fact, these are amygdala-driven responses that go back to millions of years. But the, the fact is, and we all experience it, for example, when we're in a sports arena, we, we get that, that charge, that feeling. But that's no way to run public policy. Public policy has been successful when it has forged compromises. And let me give one example. Uh, recently, you know, after I think it was after the 2018 midterms or, or at some election point, Mitch McConnell, who was our, our uh, was the majority leader, is the majority leader in Congress, famously said, "Elections have consequences. Uh, winners make policy and losers go home." That was his quote. According to Daniel Allen, that's exactly wrong. In a democracy, what elections mean is the winner, the winners get to chair the conversation. But the first thing they have to do in a democracy is invite the losers back into the conversation. The losers don't go home. The losers participate. And that's, that's the fundamental model we have to move towards. And so to answer your question, the book lays out in the third part how we have to reject this impulse to attack the other side. And it's almost like we become prisoners of our self-chosen mobs. We've chosen these, these in-groups, and, and it, we're so afraid to say anything or to think for ourselves. But here's the thing, Tanya, again, and it's why the Enlightenment is so important. What the Enlightenment really meant and why it 
it's fundamental for modern society is that it would, for the first time, enlightenment was the time when we recognized that human capacity for empirical observation, for rationality, for reason, for that's really when that all began. Now, let's take, let's take a little bit of a longer perspective on see, to see if, that, if we think that enlightenment project, so to speak, has been successful because every day on the news we hear horrible things. Well, let's, if you look at the stats, 200 years ago, um, about the human life expectancy was about 31 years. Today, it's over 70 years. 200 years ago, five children born did not survive to age five. Today, almost all do. 200 years ago, four-fifths of the world lived in poverty, and today, one-fifth does. So the progress that, that was unleashed by the Enlightenment is extraordinary, even though we have a lot of problems. So what I'm arguing is that we have to stay on that enlightened path of using reason and empirical observation to guide our policymaking and not reject it outright. But it seems that we've, uh, there are large constituencies in the country, large factions of people um, who have rejected reason and have rejected objective truth. I mean, we are now... You know, and this, everybody talks about the last administration's, um, you know, use of the term alternative facts. Uh, we saw that then, but we didn't just see it then. I mean, you know, people didn't just start making things up with the last presidency. So it strikes me, you know, I feel like I'm an optimist. I also am inclined to believe these days that um, part of the genie is out of the box and that some of the work is going to be rallying everybody else to try to step up and fight it. Because you're not going to, I mean, if somebody is truly committed to believing their lie because it makes them feel like they're on, you know, the right team, they're rooting for the right team and they feel that, you know, charge, that adrenaline charge when you feel like, you know, you're on the right team, then I don't know that um, I'm, I'm skeptical of how open large, a lot of those folks will be to objective truth. So how do we get there? How do we move the ball forward? I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question because what compelled me to write this book, so most of my career has been in business. I mean, I studied public policy early on and I have my master's in that area, but I've been a successful business person and I've watched over the last five, 10 years, how political uh, business colleagues and, and network, my professional network, both those on the right and on the left have put their heads in the sand. And, and they all know privately and, and comment in private how insane our political debate has come. Not only the Trumpian years, but even prior to that. So they all recognize that it's impossible to deny objective truth and make progress in po policy or anything else or science, but yet they don't speak out. And so I dedicated two and a half years of my life to kind of leaving business and making this argument as a plea for really smart, rational people to say enough is enough. We are not going to allow people who reject facts. Look, there's a difference between data and interpretation of the data. We can all have interpretation, but there is such a thing as fact. The way I describe it in the book is that, you know, after the Enlightenment's incredible influence, around 50 years ago, there was a new movement, which today is called postmodernism, 
which tries to argue that everything is fluid. There's no such thing as real, as you can't nail down facts. Postmodernism says that if there's an objective truth to the universe, we have no way of figuring it out. And my answer to that is that it's completely misguided. We, what I call lay postmodernism has allowed people, as you mentioned, to say, I have my facts and you have yours. Wrong. Here are the facts and we may disagree on how we interpret them. But, but this, this, is not, this is a big enough difference to drive a truck through. And we have to get back to understanding the difference between objective truths and, um, and interpretation. Now, you ask, how do we do it? The, there's good news and bad news. The good news is there 70, over 70% of Americans recognize this. You just don't hear from them. You hear from the extremes. So most Americans know that objective truth matters. The bad news is that unless we get, it's going to take a generation to really build it up again in the sense that it requires to really ascertain and, and evaluate different facts. You need civic education skills. You need, you need to have an educated population. The French radicals famously wrote in, 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 as part of the French Revolution that they knew that there was no, they knew representative democracy was the only form of government that was legitimate. But at the same time, they knew it was impossible without an educated populace. And because of the Enlightenment, we have the ability to, to evaluate evidence and judge. That's how we build our constitution of knowledge. And that has to become, that has to go back in first place and priority again. And it's going to take a real refocus. And it's going to take some time. And don't you think it's also going to take uh, some sense of people having the same objective, not the same objectives about, you know, necessarily what we all think government should be doing. I think that there are good faith, there's a good faith conversation to be had about the size of government, should it be doing this, should it be doing that? How, but what we all do need to agree on, wouldn't you say, is that we want government to be effective. We want it to work. I mean, it strikes me that now, you know, what we see is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, government being run uh, by at least some people who don't think it should do anything. And they're then, you know, kind of committed to ensuring it's an effectiveness. Demise, right. yeah. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, th I think, and you know, while I fault both sides of the, of the aisle for a lot of the dysfunction, it really, I mean, the right, uh, the, the Republican Party elements of it started rejecting the whole purpose of government, starting with the Reagan years in terms of, of making government the evil. Um, and that that is from an economic perspective, because I'm also a student of economics, that's wrong. Government has a role to play to correct problems, faults in the market, what they call failures in the market. It's very important. That's why we have an FDA. So we know scientists evaluate what drugs are safe. I mean, there, there are myriad examples. Government has a very important role. And when we, we're only going to solve pressing problems, be it COVID-19 and you know pandemics and, and climate crisis by increasing our constitution of knowledge by putting into place practical, pragmatic, realistic solutions that are based on compromise and reason. And you know what? Uh, this is where I'm optimistic. If we do that, if, if we really can re-inject re and rehabilitate our dialogue in a way that's centered around reason and leave the screaming to the, to the arena, to the ballpark, we can solve incredible problems. And that's what we've done over our history. Again, the United States is far from perfect. We have a lot of injustices, and you see them every day. And I describe many of them in the book. 
but the but as as someone much greater than me has said, the arc of history has bent in the right in the right way, and we have made incredible progress. And we need to also recognize that we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, to use an expression about what our constitution of knowledge and our enlightenment inheritance has given us. Do you think there's something to be gained? Uh- if people, if the American people started to really see themselves as clients, um, I'm a lawyer by trade. Uh, you have a very uh, successful business background. You were a CEO of a major company. You were a chief revenue officer of a major company. Don't you think that a lot of the antics that we see that are tolerated, you know, that constituents tolerate in the public sphere would never happen? I mean, if when I was practicing and if I lost a case and if all I did was come home or go to my client and say, the other side sucks, the judge was corrupt, they are evil, man, you know, pay me. No client would accept that. In your business, you know, you didn't have the luxury of saying to shareholders, look, here's what the, here's what the, what the, what the data say, but I've got some alternative facts that I want it. Like, we didn't have the luxury in these other arenas. Why do people like, why do they people let them get away with all of this? Well, so so there's a great book called The Politics Industry written by Michael Porter from Harvard Business School and Catherine Hale, which talk about the fact that the the political arena is perpetuating itself. That's what it's about. It's it's created this ecosystem where it, it just wants to survive and win the next election. And your point is exactly right. It's in other spheres, we never would tolerate this craziness. I mean, look what's going on with the 19th count of the vote in Arizona. I mean, these are this is efforts. We have so many pressing problems and we're trying to, to as if we didn't get the data correct the, fir- the first 18 times. I find that infuriating. And yet, and, and to your point, most business people and most legal minds or perfect understand that we could never run other sectors of the economy that way. And it's time that we recognize that we can't run public policy that way either. And I think many smart people have got to stand up, have, have to do what the current established Republican Party in Washington hasn't done and say enough is enough. Some have. If you look at the Lincoln Republicans and other folks who have who have said, you know, this is insane, who really yearn for the old conservative party of the old school Republicans, they've said this is insane and more Americans need to start doing that. Seth David Radwell, author of American Schism. Before you go, I want you to tell us what are people going to take away from this book? Um, how is it going to help heal the schism? We could talk about the schism all day. Um, I know you said that we do a bad job of listening uh, to one another. We don't have a lot of platforms uh, to do that. Uh, that's why I, I really appreciate your being here today. But for in the main, you know, for most folks, for the people who are getting their news on Facebook or Twitter or, you know, from their friends, what's the takeaway and how are we going to start to right this ship? Good. Well, the, the first, there's, three, there's three big takeaways, and I'm, I'm glad you asked this. The first is that our division today is not new. Again, it has antecedents, and studying those antecedents is helpful. Number two, when we have debate, we can't crowd out reason by the way we're doing it today. That doesn't work. And there's a better way going forward. I want them to take that away from the book. 77% of Americans b- believe 
you know, the exhausted majority believe there's a better way. And the better way, which is, is discussed, is about breaking out of the prison of our uh, self-inflicted, self-imposed mobs, who are these gatekeepers, and, and, and realizing that our in-group validation, which feels great, and attacking the out-group feels great, is not going to help us get forward. And there has to be a more productive way. So breaking out of our partisan bubble, breaking out of our time bubble, and re-injecting truth and data and our God-given capacities of observation and listening and reason back into the debate. That's what they're going to, I hope they take away. They're going to reject the pull of today's mudslinging and fight on reason with reason. And the book gives you a guide after, after the, the tracing and the analysis, it gives a plan for how to do that. And I would, I would love to talk to you more about it, Tanya, if you had, if you had time or on another occasion. I would love to have you back. Um, the book, it's out now, American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation. Seth David Radwell, you know, if, if it's all about fighting unreason with reason, uh, let's get that fight started. Thank you so much for being here. Sure, I and I just want to say in closing, Tanya, that this is this type of show where we get to discuss issues in some depth is exactly part of the antidote. You know, we're not tweeting at each other, you and I. You're asking me really good questions, and I'm discussing them with you, and hopefully your listeners find that valuable. That is part of the antidote. We are part of the antidote. Amen to that. Thank you, Seth. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant, and my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 